Hello, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Krista Fee, and I'm your hostess for today. And welcome to the Battle to Be Phoenix and Ferryman podcast. Today on the cusp of a major journey that we are undertaking with our Ferryman project to deliver 17 plaques to families of fallen heroes. The problem of suicide in our frontline and first responder families has been at the forefront of my mind. And as I complete my degree and do the research for my master's thesis, I have been looking at a lot of the standard suicide prevention or suicide awareness programs out there that talk to the public. And I wanna bring to your attention and for your consideration, some things that I noticed that I feel are missing. Most of the programs that I looked at suggest that suicide occurs most often at the intersection of three concepts burdensomeness, which is the individual feels in some way that people will be better off without them, that their existing is a burden on those that they love in some way. Capability, that is the person actually has the ability and access to take their own life. And the third aspect is belongingness or more directly the lack of a sense of belongingness. Working so directly with the clientele that I do with military and first responders and survivors of human trafficking, domestic violence and child abuse, I feel like it's very important that we consider adding a couple of other additional intersections here. With first responders, capability is a given. With military individuals, capability is a given because we measure capability by previous exposure to death, to other suicides, or just to the concept or idea of death. Capability is considered a desensitization. And we know in this population that those exposures have occurred. So the other two definitely are significant. But we also need to look at guilt. We need to look at the concept of survivor's guilt of the beliefs that occur when someone we care about has been taken from us on the job. For officers who were there when their partners went down, to military individuals who were there when half of their squad didn't make it home. All of these things create a belief in so many that they don't deserve to be here, 
or that if I had only done something different, the outcome might have been different. And hindsight is always 2020. But what happens is we create these beliefs that somehow our existence needs to be a punishment, that somehow we are not deserving of happiness. And that in this guilt or shame for what occurred in the past, for what occurred to us or near us, to others that we loved, we find a burden, a heavy weight that is often strongly associated with suicide attempts or suicidal ideation. So the intersection for this particular group is less about capability and more about the culmination of the factors of guilt and shame, burdensomeness, and lack of belonging. And the final piece of the puzzle is what we typically call moral injury. It's where the individual believes that something they have done in the line of duty on the job has gone against their moral fiber, their moral character, or in some way defines now who they are. So what we see here is a person who believes they are evil or horrible or not worth the life they're living because they have done something that they feel is inexcusable now. The things that we do in times of war, the things we do when there's a gun pointed at us, or when our or someone that we care about's lives are in danger are not the things that we would choose to do in our normal day-to-day lives. And it's sometimes difficult to reconcile that concept after the fact. It's sometimes hard to remember the circumstances within which, within the context that those things occurred. Now, in the present moment, all we have is the knowledge and the memory of what we've done. And that can be sufficient to create the level of guilt and or shame that pushes one to desire no longer to be here. So. Again, this this intersection for this particular clientele, for this particular population, appears to me to be more about the fourth concepts rather than capability, because capability is always there. It's not really a measure. All first responders would have the capability. All military personnel technically would have the capability. Anyone who's been exposed to the level of death and violence that these individuals have 
just automatically has that category already checked off. So as we look at risk factors, as we look at how we consider creating programming that prevents this catastrophe, we need to consider the four avenues of these risk factors. We need to consider the survivor guilt. We need to consider the shame and the moral injury. We need to consider that concept of burden burdensomeness. And we need to consider that sense of lack of belonging. Belongingness is an interesting one to talk about with this population as well, because as we can say that capability exists, also there is a natural protective factor of belongingness because everyone in these particular categories, everyone in these professions creates a family, creates a brotherhood, a sisterhood in their particular profession. We'll know the military branches and how close, if you're in the army, everyone in the army is your brother, is your sister. If you're in the Navy, everyone's your brother or your sister that's, that's in that branch. Police officers, brothers and sisters, we've got each other's backs, protect each other to some extent. There is inevitably a, at least some level of protective belongingness. But on the contrast to that, there is a belongingness to your to your in-group, to your profession, that that belongingness takes you away in some ways from being able to belong in the broader context of social, of your community, of that, that your family is a little more challenging, your friends are a little more challenging. And we often see as people join the police force, for example, a withdrawal from spending time and connecting with those who are not not on the force, those who are not part of the police family, because outsiders don't understand. Outsiders just can't understand. So it's, it's a contrast. It's a polarization that these folks experience, and it can be very disruptive to the mental health and well-being. So what do we do about all of this? Where do we begin in creating programming that actually meets the needs of our frontline and first responders? And how do we come at mental health for these people in a way that overcomes the stigma, that creates new habits and new thinking and new uh, pathways to happiness that is acceptable and embraced by individuals in these cultures? How do we get past the idea that on the surface, all of these people are unbreakable and strong and 
they don't have the same reactions to the stimuli that, shall I say, like normal people do, that they have some kind of super ability to just have all this stuff bounce off of them. How do we get through those ideas? How do we teach the public that it's important to take care of our mental health? And that people in these frontline and first responder positions are just like you. They're just like me. They're just like every other community member out there. They're human. They're vulnerable. They have emotions. And all of these things are important. And we want to encourage the idea that emotional expression is healthy. We want to encourage the idea that we're all human together. We want to encourage the idea that we're all part of one family and that we need to be here for each other. And there is no insider and no outsider. So as I continue this research for this master's thesis and I look at all the programming that exists and the many stereotypes that we're living by and the many errors in judgment that I see occurring in the existing programming and the stubborn stigma that us first responder families are still holding on to that it's not okay to ask for help that it, there's some kind of weakness involved in getting mental health treatment from all of these aspects, we can do better. We can all do better. We all need to do better. So I ask you today to think about the frontline military veteran, first responders, and survivors that you know reach out and say something kind, include them in your life, in your community, show them you care and vice versa for all my first responders, my military, my veterans. Make the choice today to choose to reach out and connect with someone who isn't in your line, in your squad, in your branch. Connect with someone purposely. Choose to engage in the broader sense of community just to remind yourself that you're still a part of it. Just to remind yourself that we're all in this together. So if we all could just be a little kinder, a little more open, a little more understanding, and a little more willing to step outside of our comfort zone, outside of our boxes, and choose to take the steps and the actions necessary to take care of our mental health and the mental health of those we know. 
We could get behind, get underneath this. We could stop this all from the from the ground up, from underneath. We could work from a preventative standpoint on the new recruits from the very beginning to build healthy habits, to build an understanding of the risks, to allow people to choose healing before the injuries even occur. If we just look at the big picture, the solutions are right there in front of our noses. This is your food for thought for today. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Krista Fee from Battle to Be, signing out.